Welcome back to The Courage to Speak with me, Leonie Mellinger, the podcast that asks, what does it take to have the courage to speak up and speak out in life? My guest today is Kathy Lett. Kathy has written 20 books, including 14 best-selling novels, the first of which was Puberty Blues, and the latest of which is Till Death or a Little Maiming Do Us Part. She is published in over 17 languages. Her books have been made into films, TV series and an opera. She also works as a TV presenter and a travel writer. She has just completed a tour in Britain and Australia of her one-woman show, Girls' Night Out, and is pleased to report that she didn't fall out with the cast. Cathy has three honorary doctorates. She lives in Sydney and London, where she can often be found at the Savoy Hotel, drinking a cocktail that was named after her following her time as writer-in-residence there. She cites her career highlights as once teaching Stephen Fry a word, Salman Rushdie the limbo, and scripting Julian Assange's cameo in The Simpsons' 500th episode. She is an ambassador for Plan International, Their World, the National Autistic Society, and ambitious about autism. Cathy, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you on the subject of The Courage to Speak, because you are known for being a loud mouth well, <laughs> I was okay. going to say outspoken yeah okay so what I'm interested the mouth from the south yeah. were you always like this or was little Kathy different oh gosh well I have three sisters so I don't know how many siblings you have Leonie what do you have I have um I actually have five. Oh my god well then you know <laughs> yeah. it, you speak up or you don't get heard yes so yes. it's just a cacophony of and where Cackling. did you where did you come in in the second second? Right. So my older sister is a is a she was a police psychologist. She was the chief police psychologist for New South Wales. She was like cracker, you know, solving forensic crimes. Oh really brave. She got medals for heroism and stuff. And then there was me, the black sheep. I'm now just a little bit beige, beige <laughs> sheep. And then my next sister down is in marketing. She works in um, nuclear medicine. And then oh my, my little sister's a naturopath. So we're very oh, different, wow. but very, very close. Right. And, uh, and your mom would speak your up for each other. Pretty formidable, too. Yeah, and she was a teacher. I mean, right. she's still 91, she's still alive, thank God. Yeah. Um, but you know, when she had um, her, when she worked, she, when I was a girl at school, you know, she was the only mother who had a full time job. Most of them really? were. Really? Any other woman who worked was in the tuck shop. Yes. So she not only had a job, but a vocation. She was a teacher and then a head and a school principal. Right. So, and that was a great um, role model for, yes, for exactly. her daughters. I mean, none of us would ever have changed our names when we got married or, you know, we're all passionate feminists. Yeah. So, so how did your dad fit into all these women? <laughs> well, my poor dad, you know, his name was Mervyn. He died 10 years ago, sadly, but his name was Mervyn. He worked in optic fibre, so we called him Optic Merv. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a famous footballer in Australia. He was oh, a front was row he? forward for the Bulldogs. He was the uh, the fastest front row forward in Australian history at, at the time when he was um, when he was a famous player. And he won a running race at the Sydney Cricket Ground with all the footballers. Got a hundred pounds in the with, and then used that to put the down payment on a block of land. Um, oh, where were you? And then he they he they built a little room. 
that they lived in, mum and dad, um, that is now the garage. Yes. And my sister and I were only 13 months apart. We lived there as babies. And every time they made a bit of money, they built another room onto the... So the house is kind of this fabulous ramshackle construction of extra rooms being shoved on here and there. And he wanted four sons, obviously, so he could have his own little football team. But he got four daughters. But we all verbally scrum. Right. I think my I can tackle I can verbally tackle any man in the world yeah. and take him down. And so so you So you, I think the gene you came learned through. that yes. early on. Mm. Oh fantastic. Now your books uh, track every stage of your life. It's mm. absolutely fascinating. Right and I love the way that you, you always tell it like it is. And and I, I wondered if sometimes is it easier to say things through your writing um, that you couldn't maybe say in any other way? I think if I have any gift at all as a writer, it's putting in words what women are thinking but not necessarily saying it Absolutely. out loud. Absolutely, yeah. Because we're brought up to be so decorative and demure, etc. Yes. Um, and also just writing down the way women talk when there's no men around. Yes. Because I think there's a big difference between male and female humour. I think my male friends are very funny. Yeah. But they have what I call the black belt and tongue foo. You yeah. know, they, they sort of tell set jokes. Yes. Which is their way of being... Friendly, but not intimate the way women are. Women never tell set jokes. Yes. Ever. Absolutely. Our humour is cathartic, confessional, very candid. Yeah. We strip off to our emotional underwear in about 3.6 seconds. Yes. And it's a psychological striptease that reveals all. And it's very, very funny. Yes. I mean, I, you have to be hospitalised from hilarity on a girl's night out. So, And I just try and capture that camaraderie on the page. Because my whole... Um, raison d'etre is is that women are each other's human wonder bras you know uplifting supporting yes. and making each other look bigger and better but you're very good at that because because you're so outspoken i think you give people permission to do that too and yeah. not everybody is like that i think a lot of people don't come out with the stuff you come out with so you read your books and you go oh my god i can't <laughs> believe she's saying this this is exactly what happens but i've never told anybody oh, that's so good you know so i think it's brilliant but i'm but, sure that comes from having three sisters because yeah. we tell each other everything yeah and we can be so honest and open with each yes. other Yes, I'm so, sure that helped, obviously. And we speak up for each other. So, for example, if any, any of us is ever in any trouble, you know, the wagon circle. Yeah. And, and I've, got that, I've got that wonderful ballast in life that I know I've got that yeah. Un, yeah. unspoken, unconditional love. Yes. And from my mother too. Yes. So. Some of the stuff that you, you deal with in Puberty Blues is... is is very hard-hitting about mm. the experiences that, that mm -hmm. teenagers have, and you clearly had. And it, I, I would go so far to say is it traumatic, you mm. know, and, and I'm interested in the effect on you that that had. Looking back, I think the reason um, I always want to write things down, I like to write the book I wish I'd had when I was going through something. So it's almost like handing a manual down to the next group. <laughs> And I think that need to educate and enlighten comes from my, the fact my mother's a teacher and I've got a teaching gene, but I've also got a weird kind of crazy comedy gene. So it comes, it comes through in my work that it's, I'm, all my books are so strongly feminist, but they're funny. Because mm. I think if you can disarm with charm, Absolutely. you've got a much more likely chance of changing people than if you're hitting them over the head with your, your ideology. So Puberty Blues, which I, I, I'll just explain to people listening who might not know, in Australia, it's a cult book. I wrote it when, with, with a girlfriend and we wrote it together when we were um, 
about 16 or 17, I think. And it was about the brutal sexual initiation that surfy girls go through in that very tribal culture when they're only 13. And it's a very raw book. And I left school at 16, mainly to escape these surfy boys. I always say, you know, the only examination I've ever passed is my cervical smear test. (laughs) But I ran away to be a writer as well because I had already had so much I wanted to say. And Puberty Blues was written, I wrote it for all those other surfy girls. Because you have no objectivity at that age about what you're going through. But how did you manage not to censor yourself? Because so many writers find it really difficult to write about such personal stuff. I just, it just, I was reading Hemingway at the time, actually, and I can see what I was reading because the book is so spare. There's not one um, extra adjective or adverb. It's, it's like straight Vegemite or Marmite with no bread or butter. It's very astringent. And I think it's because I was reading him. I was educating myself through books and through reading. That, that, and it was the perfect book to be author to be reading when I was writing Puberty Blues because the reason it's lasted so long and it resonates with every generation is it's so easy to read and it's so raw and it's so real and I don't think there has been a book since Puberty Blues that has dealt with that 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 terrible um, sort of brutality and sexism that young girls go through especially in that surfy culture with such honesty and that's why it resonates and goes Absolutely. on it was made into a film by Bruce Beresford and then it was just made into a 20 hour tv series and funnily enough i thought the main the main viewers of that program would be people my age kind of reminiscing about what we went, what it was like or maybe our parents going oh my god is that what they were doing but the main demographic of viewers was teenagers oh. because it still spoke so honestly to them so I think readers can smell verisimilitude in your work, and if it's if there isn't that bit of authenticity, you know, it's not it's not going to it's not going to strike that, that kind of um, creative chord that you hope that it will. So, but there are many writers who can um, write stuff, but then they can't speak it. You know, they just don't know how to talk at all. That's right. why they write. But you seem to be able to do both. <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> Oh my God, I am a bit of a chatter. I think it's my Celtic gene. I've got the Celtic gene back there. That, you know, they're never short of a word. That's but, brilliant. But yeah, but the boys I grew up with were, were they disproved the theory of evolution. They were evolving into apes. They really were. <laughs> and as proof of how sexist they were, they used to get us to cut their names out in paper, sticky tape them to our stomachs, and then sunbake so we get a tan tattoo no. in the shape of their name. So if ever I get cancer, I'll have this melanoma called Bruce. Oh my God. I'll have to have like a brucectomy to get rid of it. <laughs> you know. And so when I talk about them, I, I try and do it... When I am talking about my books, I try and also find the funny... Yes. Because, as I said, if you can make yeah. make them laugh, they'll they'll be listening. And, and the men will listen to you. And you're very, very good at that. Have you faced any challenges or obstacles being an outspoken woman, either oh, in sure. Australia or in London? And is there a difference between how you operate in the two countries? That Of course, any woman who puts her head above the parapet is going to get it you know, shot shot at, especially by, by men, because I'm blowing raspberries at the patriarchy all the time. And I will continue to comically kneecap men until we get equal pay. There isn't one country in the world that has gender parity, not one. So, you know, we still have a lot to be angry about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I, I don't feed the trolls. I, if when I'm trolled, I don't feed them. I picture them. I see them living in their mother's basement, you know, with a... <laughs> Their old tracksuit pants covered in cheesels and jism, you know. And I think, would I talk to them in real life? No. I said, why would I 
waste mm. time talking to them. It's not going to change them. And is it different, though, um, in, yeah. in Australia as yes. opposed to... Because I should think the Brits are a bit more uptight, aren't they? I don't well, know. Well, they're, they're, they're just as sexist, the men, but it's, it's much more... It's more hidden. It's more insidious. It's more subtle. So for it, the good thing in, in Australia is that the battle lines are drawn and you can see the enemy. Right. They're right there in plain sight. Mm. Um, you know, and a lot of them still prove that, you know, dinosaurs do still roam the earth. <laughs> they are prehistoric. But in England, it's it's more, um, yeah, it's it's more hidden. And I, I, I prefer to know, be able to see the enemy I'm shooting at. Like here, for example, so many left-wing men belong to the Garrett Club. This is a club that bans women. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. if yeah. that was in Australia, we'd be there throwing flaming tampons through their windows. <laughs> but here it's just kind of accepted that that's okay. Yeah. You know, in the way Boris Johnson talked about how he would condescend women and say, calm down, dear. Yes. Or, or give her a little pat on the bottom and send her on away. Yes. I mean, that's just, to me, worse than mm. the way the, those terrible misogynists treated Julia Gillard because that was blatant. Yes. They weren't hiding. Yeah. You know, whereas here they're... There, yeah. Mm. So, and have you ever had to deal with uh, backlash or, or negative feedback for expressing your opinions? Oh, often, especially yeah. from blokes. Yeah. But you know, I, I always say to women, you we are more verbally dexterous than men. We use about three hundred and fifty more words in our daily vocabulary than the average male. Oh, really? So yeah, it is a weapon we have. You can give a good tongue lashing, and whenever I go to schools and give talks to girls about you know preparing for life, I always say to them. You are underdressed if you go out without a couple of really good one-liners tucked up your trouser leg. Because if a, a boy, if some guy is trying to put you down, you know, if you can take him out with a joke and make other people laugh at him, well, you've you've won. So, you know, use their testicles as maracas. Yeah, so you actually use comedy as a weapon sometimes. Totally. And, and so comedy enables you to say things that you couldn't say straight. Is that right? Yes, because yeah. also you you can also always say <laughs> you, oh, I was being ironic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You clearly have an irony deficiency. And yeah. you do that so well. I mean, oh, that thanks. is that well, is that is a skill. You know. Well, but, I think growing up with those Aussie guys too, it was a it was a real um, lesson. You know, you had to sort of men talk about having balls of steel, but women, you know, my women friends have labia of titanium. And it's because, you know, for example, my very first job interview in, in Australia for a TV show, I already had a novel out, I already had a column in the newspaper, so I wasn't green, but I was about 22, 21, 22. I went for a job interview, and this is how it played out. Five television executives, males, sitting in a semicircle like that. Yeah. They're, they're all very well known, I won't name them, but, you know, you probably would have heard of some of them. So, and the, the top dog whacked... Um, a $10 note on the table and said, I bet I can make your tits move without touching them. And I said, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. Ah. He leant over, mauled my breasts and said, ha, ha, you won, there's the $10. <gasps> and all the men are laughing. So I immediately said, I bet you 20 bucks I can make your balls move without touching them. And I kicked him between the legs. Did you? I certainly did. Oh, my God. I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, today you'd have a sexual harassment suit, but then we didn't have mm. any protection. Mm. You just had to, every day you went to work, strap on a bulletproof bra mm. and deal with those men. And mm. I learned to deal with them by giving them a bit of quiplash. Mm. And mm. I think all women should, should be good at that. Irish women are good at it. Mm. They've also, you know, yes. when you go to Ireland, they've, all my Irish female friends are really quick-witted in that same way. And it's a good, it's a really good 
tool to have in your in your kit. Yeah. You know. And are things different, do you think, since the Me Too, Too movement? Well, that not that a great example of people speaking up and mm. speaking out? Yeah. And it started with one person yeah. and then immediately snowballed. And that's what I would say to anyone who's ever vacillating about whether they should speak out. It, you, you will find momentum. You know, it just takes one voice. And all people want to know is that they're not alone. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that in my books too. The only book I was really worried about was when I wrote Mad Cows, which took the idea that motherhood is the, is the ultimate fulfillment for a female. I took that great big sacred cow and yeah. I whacked it on the barbie. I thought it was fabulous. Thank you. I love that book too. But I wrote that in 1999. I mean, mummy lit. It probably started mummy lit, mm. the whole genre. Mm. Mm. And now everybody talks about how difficult motherhood is. It's fine. It needed to be said. But at the time, nobody no, was saying no it. No one was saying it. And I was in England, which was even worse, because at least in Australia, Aussie women are just, mm. they're just more kind of warm and, 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 and open and honest about mm. these things. But in England, everyone at the time was trying to be the perfect mother. Exactly. And so I, I, I remember saying to this girl, group of girlfriends, English girlfriends of mine, like, oh, my God, this is so hard. I mean, I'm just, I'm going, is anyone else just yeah. crying, sobbing into their pillow at night yeah. with the exhaustion? And one of them, one of the English women looked at me and said, have you thought about therapy? Oh, my gosh. You know, instead of just saying, oh, God, here's a gin, drink that, you know. Oh, my gosh. So I thought, I did think, well, when I wrote Mag House, I thought, maybe I'm the only one not coping. No. No, but as soon as the yeah. book came out, I, I, I got so many letters from other women. And I this bet is, you did. This is long before Mum's Net no, or and all did. that stuff. Hmm. So people, women didn't have an outlet. So, uh, And that's when I thought, Kath, always trust your instincts. Exactly. Your instincts will ride. But that was a big bestseller for me, that it, book. I, well, I'm not surprised. But I, I also I'm... bet you got quite a backlash. From, I did. <laughs> from women who did not want that to be told. Yeah, there was a, there was a bit of a backlash yeah. too. I had to navigate the yeah. um, mail on Sunday. <laughs> you, you have genuinely mastered the art of not appearing to care what other people think, which I guess helps you to mm-hmm. speak out. Is it something you've had to work on? Because I know a lot of people say the one thing about being older is I don't care so much what people think, but you've always managed that. How have you managed that? Because, you know, clearly to have the courage to speak out, you've got to not care that some people are not going to like it. No, you know? I think the, the important thing is just to have a great group of girlfriends. If you've got that wonderful support, that female friendship, I mean, you can't beat that camaraderie and yes. that, that loyalty and that love. Yeah. And, you know, and I've got that, I've got wonderful English, I've got wonderful friends in London, I've got wonderful friends in Australia, and I've got my sisters. Yeah. So you do need the sisterhood. The sisterhood is powerful. Right. And it does keep you buoyant. It shouldn't be called buoyant, it should be called girland. <laughs> because it does it keep you uplifted. So... Yeah, so I suppose it's I suppose it's I suppose it's that, yeah. And and also I I my I have to call out the patriarchy when it, uh, and the misogyny. I, I I can't not do that. It's totally in my DNA. What drives you to do that? Well, I, I hate inequality. I mean, I just and the fact that women we feminists have been saying the same thing for so long mm. and nothing's changed. Mm. It's so dispiriting and it won't change until men join us at the barricades. Yeah. So my favourite thing is when a woman will write to me or I'll, I'll, she'll come up to me at a book signing and she'll say, oh, I was reading one of your books in bed and my, my husband was like, oh, I can't believe you're reading a book by that loud-mouthed, you know, hairy-legged <laughs> feminist, you know, whatever. And then he'll, then she'll be laughing and he'll go, go on, read me that bit, read me that bit. And she'll she'll read it and he won't laugh and he'll go, read me another bit. <laughs> you know, okay, read me another bit. 
And then gradually after a few days, he disappears into the toilet with the book, which is the ultimate accolade from a man, you know, because a lot of blokes think sitting on the toilet's a leisure activity. And the fact that I can, that I can win them over with a bit of humour yeah, and that I can disarm with comic charm yes. in that way, to me, is a total victory. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Are guys frightened of you? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> not the lovely men. There are so many lovely yeah. men. I have so many great ma- men yes. in my life, yes. obviously. Yeah. And, uh, and I've got a beautiful boyfriend and I've got a lovely son and I've got two great ex-husbands. So it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm man bashing in any way, no. but I will, I will bash misogynists yeah, and sexists and I will call them out. Yeah. yeah. And actually I wanted to ask you about your, your new lovely boyfriend because... Everybody I know these days is only able to meet people through Tinder or some kind of app. And you waltz into Regent's Park <laughs> and you meet somebody. I know, now, right? now, most people, if they heard a guy sitting under a tree playing the guitar, which I believe is, is how you first spotted him, would just go, oh, that's nice, and walk on. But how on earth did you have the courage? I mean, talk about courage to speak up. That is courage. How did you manage that one? Do you one? think there's courage? Yes, Gosh, I do. I know, it's kind of embarrassing when you're a satirist and, you're, and you've got chronic skepticemia like me. I am so sceptical of things. To have what they call that in the movies, a meet-cute or a cute meet, <laughs> where you meet someone in that cinematic way. It is unbelievable. It's the most romantic thing I've heard for a very, very oh, long I time. I know. And, yeah. and he was playing bark in the park oh under a tree because it was a hot day. It was too hot in his flat. Yeah. And it was the most beautiful playing I'd ever heard. I had to go and say something to him. And of course, once, and then he's Irish, so of course, oh, oh God, my God, that mellifluous voice. And then, oh. of course, the charm and yeah. then the humour and the intelligence. And yeah. we just got talking, and I just couldn't stop talking to him. So, But I mean, and nobody now, else was sitting by him, were they? And no. Then, so, how come you had the courage to do that? I suppose <laughs> it's just an Australian thing. It's amazing. Yeah, and also, I always give praise where it's due. <laughs> I mean, if I see someone wearing a beautiful dress, yeah. Or I see a guy on the tube doing something kind if he stands up for someone. I always say that was a really nice thing you just did. I yes. always do that. Yeah. You know, get, when I see something good, call it out as well. So, yeah. And, I'm, and, he's, and also, he's, my boyfriend is wonderful because he's a beta male. And beta is better. I mean, I've had two alpha husbands who are brilliant. Both yeah. of them amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and the most important part of a man's anatomy is his huge throbbing organ between the ears. <laughs> And both of my ex-husbands are incredible intellectuals and amazing men. And Brian is my Brian is also incredibly bright, but he's he's so kind and he's gentle mm. and he's a nurturer. Oh, so I, he, I don't mean to drive you mad, but he also does all the cooking, all the chopping. I am so jealous. I he, could just... wait. It's worse. There's more. Yeah. Oh, one God. more. You're really going to kill me. Right. Now. He cooks cakes. Oh my God. Oh my God! I know. And he adores you met me. him in the park. Oh, yeah. And you must have an angel looking after you. <laughs> oh, I I'm, think I deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> but I would say, yeah, the reason women should look for a, a beta male is that they adore you, they don't bore you, and they do all your chores for you. Well, yeah, but most people would meet that person if they're very, very lucky mm-hmm. through an app. This is what I'm saying. These, <laughs> the fact people can't even meet people these days because they're too scared to speak. Right. Is This is what I'm intrigued by. Well, you know? Brian says too, he says, forget Tinder. There should be an app called Tender. Yes. Where you're match made by what poetry you like and what music you listen to. That's such a good idea. Isn't that a great idea? And what books you, you know, so it's an intellectual, emotional match rather than a that physical is such attraction, a good which idea. grows through liking the same things and being fired up by the same things. So, 
Yeah, Tinder. Let's do that. Yes. That can be our app. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and has there ever been a time when you felt you wanted to say something but couldn't? I can't imagine. Yep. But has there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When my son was diagnosed with autism, when he was three. Yes. And and my husband at the time, Jeffrey, brought Julius's father, didn't want me to talk about it in public. Right. Um, he said it was a private thing. And so I didn't talk about Jules's autism in public till he was 21. And when he turned 21, I, I, I found myself... Because, you know, when you're a writer, it is a very cathartic experience. I always knew one day I'd write a book about, you know, a single mom raising a child on the spectrum. Yes. But this... I didn't know when I'd write it, but I started writing a different book with this this very personal book started pouring out at the end of my pen called The Boy Fell to Earth. Yes. So I said to Jules, how would you feel about us coming out about your autism? And he read some of the book and he said, well, mum, it's a celebration of idiot, idiosyncrasies, eccentricities and being different. And I said, that's exactly what it is, Jules, oh, thanks. how wonderful. So with his permission, I very tentatively started talking about it. I was so nervous. Oh, my goodness. Because I didn't want people to think that I was exploiting him in any way. Yes. But then, of course, the reaction was so positive and so many other people started talking about their own children who had needs of some... Or their brother or their father or... Because autism, of course, mainly comes through the male line. Mm -hmm. Women do get have autism, of course, but sometimes they're better at masking it as well. Yeah. But what I realised is that it's always better to shine a light into a dark corner. Yes. How, how can it not be better to illuminate these things? Yes. But I, so I regret not speaking out about that for so long. Because also, it would explain to people why I was so deranged. Yes. Of why course. I was swinging off a chandelier with a cocktail between my teeth, you know, or <laughs> running, shrieking into the night, sobbing or whatever. You know, people, it, it was a missing piece of my puzzle too. That, yes, that, that, completely. And so I do regret that. And I would say to anyone who's, who is raising a child who's different, you know, talk about it, join support groups, find other people going yeah. through it. You know, there's, it's the only way to survive really is to have that, um, that psychological totally. yeah, and do you, safety net. Do you think that as somebody with a profile that, that it, speaking up is a responsibility almost? I do. Because maybe other people can't. Yeah, I think that's yeah. for sure. What is the point of having a profile if you can't use it to make the world a better place? I'm always... I mean, I have do, I do have some famous friends who don't use their public platform. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'm constantly trying to get them to change. <laughs> but, you know, for some of them, I think they, they feel um, they wouldn't have the longevity they have in their careers if they could be... If they, they're worried about being trolled, yes. they're worried about being attacked, yeah. they're worried about being um, put in, you know, categorised in a certain box. But do you think social media and cancel culture has impacted people's willingness to speak up? Because it's so magnified totally. now. Yes, it? I think so, totally. So yeah. it's very, I mean, I, I know people who, who just had to come off it mm. because... They just couldn't cope with it. Was, it became scary. Yeah, no, it is. It is scary, and 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 the people who put those hateful posts up should be held to account. Yeah, the fact they can do yeah. it anonymously is outrageous. Yeah, yeah. Because my mother told me the other day. She only told me recently, actually, that when Puberty Blues came out, um, she was a headmistress at the time, and she said that she she got so many anonymous phone calls of people saying, "You call yourself a, a teacher? How can you be a head teacher when you've got it?" A slut of a daughter like that. What kind of mother are you? And that oh, kind of stuff. No. Now that was the that was the internet trolling of its day. Yes. Was the anonymous phone call. Yes. Which you couldn't trace. Yes. 
Um, and she she didn't tell me because she knew it would have de- so totally decimated me. Yeah. Um, so it's always gone on. Yeah, but it's... But you mustn't let it cow you because the other thing I would say is when you speak up, that yes, there'll be people who attack you, but there'll be the equal amount of people who applaud you. Right. So you just have to concentrate on the positive side and and ignore the negative, in my view. And it it's does, worth it. it hasn't impacted you? It hasn't made you kind of scared to speak up? I mean, look what happened, you know, in terms of the whole... Of, to, to J.K. Rowling on the whole transgender issue. Yeah. Uh, and Sometimes it can it, be like can poking be, the wasp nest. You know, you know, I mean, but, there are certain subjects that are really inflammatory. Would you steer away from certain things? I think, you know, when I say it's poking the wasp nest, but you can also, comedy allows you to put that, that suit on. Mm. That, what do you call that suit they wear, the beekeeping suit? Oh, yes. It does give you a bit of protection. That's what I was saying, that you, you use it as a weapon in a very skilled way yes yes and, yes and and i think women are very good at that so i would always say try and do it with a bit of humor yes and a bit of self-deprecating humor because yes. if people think you're sending yourself up yes as well they're, they're much more generous in their opinion I think. yes yes so, yeah but yes. it can be like yeah it can be like balancing on a gymnast beam <laughs> yeah just to mix metaphors i've got wasps i've got gymnast beams it's all going on <laughs> And how, how do you encourage others, particularly women, to find their voice and speak up for themselves? Because there are so many who cannot do anything like, like the way you do it. Well, I always think back to the suffragettes and how brave they were. And see, Australia in Australia, women got the right to not just vote, but also to stand for parliament before any country in the world. I mean, New Zealand was the first country to give women the vote. No, it was South Australia, New Zealand, and then it was all of Australia. But Australia was the first country to give women the right to stand for parliament. And those suffragettes were so famous, Viva Goldstein, Muriel Matters, that actually Emily Pankhurst brought them to England like rock stars to talk to British women saying, to inspire them on Mm. how to get, Mm. to win their rights. Mm. Mm. You know, and they did it in a funny, cheeky way as well. Like... Muriel Matters, who was an actress and then became an activist, she came over here with the first with the suffragettes, and the king. Had, uh, there was a proclamation that, that you couldn't have any um, any public uh, demonstrations on the street, or you'd be arrested. So she hired a hot air balloon, and printed out these pamphlets saying "Votes for Women," and she flew over the top of the king's speech, dropping down these pamphlets. And then, unfortunately, the wind blew her off course and she ended up in some cow paddock in Kent or something. But it became an international story. It's oh a huge goodness. story. I've never heard that Yeah, story. and Australia, what put Australia on the map was not the Anzacs. Everyone thinks it was the brave soldiers yeah. in the First World War. It was actually our suffragettes who were... They were, they were we were seen as kind of like a, a, an incredible democratic experiment that allowing women into Parliament. So whenever I'm um, nervous about speaking up, I think of the I think of those those the, my foremothers and how brave and how inventive and how clever they were, and I draw great great strength from that. I was going to ask you, do you ever get nervous? Um, do I? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course, especially if I'm saying something a bit contentious. But mm. if it's true, if I know what I'm saying is true. I know that it will it will cut through and it will it will, it will resonate yeah. and it will land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So far, let's see how we go on the next book. 
And have you ever been inspired by somebody else's ability to to speak out? A lot of my friends, yes. A lot of my... Emma Thompson. Yeah. I think she's... I love the way she speaks up and speaks out. Bette Midler does it with humour also. Yes. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. A a lot of my female friends are the same as me. They're, they're, They're vocal and they're brave and they're funny and they're clever and they're witty and they want the world to be a better place, like Sandy Toxvig, another one of my mm. really good friends, Ruby Wax, mm. who's mm. talked so openly about her mental health issues. Yes. And yeah. made it easier for other people to do that. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. the only good things can come from, from using your voice. You yeah. Know, what's the point of having it? Yeah, yeah. And can you share any specific experiences where, where you've, you've really had to summon up the courage to, to say something? yeah. I can think of one thing. Yeah. Well, the first thing I can think of is when I wrote a novel called Fetal Attraction, which was also probably the, one of the first books to ever tell the truth about childbirth. Yeah. And and the horrors. Yeah. And and also call out a lot of the, the misogynistic um, obstetricians at the time, that yeah. kind of thing. And it was also a satire on the British literati, glitterati and clitterati. Because yes. I'd only hadn't lived in London that long. Yeah. And I'd met so many condescending yes. <laughs> upper class types. I remember being at a book party once where this book reviewer said he was he was, you know, dropping his own name and you know, mouthing off and, and he said something he said something about something was condescending and he turned to me and said, Condescending, it means talking down to. Right. I mean, <laughs> come on. Oh my God. And then um I was going on a program called Start the Week, which is on the BBC. Yeah. Um, yeah. And at the time yeah. Melvin Bragg was the presenter. Yeah. And that that set the agenda, the news agenda for the week almost. Yes. And I went on that show and Melvin was so rude to me and so angry and and dismissive and horrible and when I got off air you know saying how could I an Australian satirize his milieu you know yeah and when I got off air all the journalists were ringing me saying why did Mel why was Melbourne like that do you want to say anything and the English way is never complain never explain exactly and my friends were saying don't react don't react and I thought and I and I and I was really upset by how he treated me. And I I remember I was weaning my baby at the time. The milk was squirting out. Like I was, what you know how you're a hormonal wreck. Yeah, of course. What, what he was you... going through a weird, grumpy time. You know, I don't mm. know. I can't remember why. But anyway, mm. so and I thought oh, I won't say anything. And then I thought, oh, what have I got to lose? Yeah. And I thought you should always speak up. Yeah. And that training I had from those guys yes. putting the ten dollars on the table. I thought, no, I'll just comedically kneecap him. So I gave interviews, I gave quotes saying clearly his midlife crisis had started without him and he was probably one of those guys who thought monogamy was something you make dining room tables out of. And I said, if only he didn't have love bites on his mirror, you know, see his reflection more clearly, you know. And I just made jokes. And in the end... He had to apologize. He apologized to me in the Sunday Times. Oh, good. And also, the book went straight up the bestseller list. So Marvelous. I thought, what is there? Always speak out and speak up. Brilliant. So, and I do hasten to add that Melvin and I are friends now. Right. I think he was just going through probably a bad time in his private life. I don't know. But if you you can look it up at the time, he'd been savaging a few women. Like he was on a roll. Okay. Um. So. But, yeah. But he stopped after that. But, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's. What a great story. Yeah, I'd forgotten about what that until you just story. asked me. I thought, wait, there was a moment, yeah. Have, have you ever regretted uh, saying anything? 
Oh, well, I have foot and mouth disease, chronic. <laughs> if there's a faux pas in a 10-mile radius, I will make it. Right. So, yeah, often I say really? something. Oh, yeah, I do. Oh. But luckily, being Antipodean in Britain, people just sort of, they kind of pat you on the head and think, oh, poor little colonial girl, she couldn't help it. <laughs> so you get away with it. You get away with it, yeah. I've never so heard far. It. You, you get away with all of this. That's quite brilliant. Well, you it? have to be a bit cheeky. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what advice would you give somebody? Because I know, you know, you say you've got lots of friends who speak up and mm. and, that, and, and you've got this, this wonderful female network, but there are so many women in particular, mm. who would never be able to. So people listening, uh, what what could you say to help them with the first step to be able to Look, do it? It's, it is hard for women because, as I said before, we're raised to be decorative and demure. We're raised to be people pleasers. Yeah. All the research shows that when a man and woman start talking at the same time in a meeting, the woman always pulls back out of politeness. Yeah. You know, Sheryl Sandberg started that whole idea about leaning in. Yeah. And I think you just have to practice doing that. Yes. Because we've. How many times have you been at um, a meeting where you've made a, a, a really good suggestion, totally ignored? A few yes. minutes later, a man says it, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's brilliant! You're genius." Well, that's the time you go. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on my idea that I just said a minute ago. Because blah blah blah. And if you're at a dinner party, it happens too. So many times I've been at a dinner party where. You know, the the hostess will say something really funny, yeah, and nobody will laugh. And then her say her husband, um, who she happened just recently, a very well known British broadcaster, right, made a similar joke, and everybody's guffawing. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, your your wife just just made that. And I remember he then said. Oh, yeah, but women can't tell jokes. And I was straight no. away said, yeah, that's because we marry them. Oh. So come straight back. Marvellous. Like, pretend you're at a tennis game. Like, just think of it as tennis. Yeah. The Wimbledon of wit. Yes. Lob back some banter. And if you're thinking it, say it. Don't think. Because there's that wonderful French expression, I can't speak French, but esprit d'escalier. Yeah, yeah, esprit d'escalier. How do you say it? Esprit d'escalier. Esprit d'escalier. The, the wonderful thought, the wonderful retort As you're going you down of. the stairs, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a brilliant French expression. Yes, it is. So try to avoid it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> when, when you think it, say it. Yes. Be quick. Yes, you know, and get and get get your, you know, become the Navratilova of the backhanded compliment. But how do you do that? Because so often I think afterwards I I do have that, and I go, damn, I, I wish I'd said that. I so, know. but you manage to do it in the moment. Practice is practice. It's having it's having your one-liners there. Practice, and also I love banter. I mean, yeah. to me that's my that's my repartee is my favourite exercise yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I do seek out witty friends I must say and yeah. that nothing thrills me more than just lobbing a bit of bit of banter back and forth. Kathy this has been an absolute thrill for me and an absolute pleasure thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well thank, thank you. you for speaking up about speaking up. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Courage to Speak presented by me Leonie Mellinger. The Courage to Speak is produced by Anushka Warden, with sound production by Theo Bosenket and music by Guy Pearson. For more information on The Courage to Speak, visit www.mellinger.co.uk.